Warning, this episode of Seriously Wrong divides the left at 8 minutes and 43 seconds, 24 minutes and 8 seconds, 38 minutes and 5 seconds, and at 1 hour, 8 minutes and 6 seconds. We apologize for the work that needs to be done in repairing the left community after this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Seriously Wrong podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. That's Sean. Hello. We host. Hosting, you know, it's an important skill in, in the modern day. It's going to wax philosophical about the nature of hosting. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, you know, a lot of people don't, uh, you don't realize how much you need hosts until they're not there. That's true. And I just want to compliment you on your hosting of this episode. You, you. hosted two guests, Nicole and Hugh of Ad Astra Comics. And I just got to listen and it was uh, delightful. Thank you. And I'll also say thank you on behalf of them. Thank you from them as well. <laughs> right. That's what I'm trying to say. Ooh, that was a little hosting stumble. I consider myself a better host than that. You always get bashful about your hosting. There, there was even some moments in the recording where you were like, sorry, I'm not a good host. I cut them out so no one will know. But, oh, thank God. Yeah. Because there's nothing worse than a host who doesn't have the confidence to host fully and host from the heart. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the episode is about comics, or at least it starts off being about comics. You guys kind of get into a whole bunch of topics and it's a wonderful conversation. Yeah, because at Astro Comics, they're an independent left-wing comics publisher, and they've actually got a new comic that's available for order now called The Beast, which is about the oil industry and the advertising industry and activism. And this is like a long-form comic. Yeah, it's a graphic novel. And so I, I met at Astro comics through some comics that I had made a little over a year ago. I was making quite a bit of political comics and publishing them on Facebook. And actually for a while you were publishing and making political comics as well. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. Really... That's how they found you through the Facebook page. You're fully yeah, yeah. That's how I originally uh, met liberalism. them. Uh, but it turns out we have some mutual friends as well, but it was a fortuitous run in because I really like the work they do. And also their opinions on things are really like informed and balanced and in line with my own biases and preferences. Yeah, I, I actually started making comics partially because you were doing it and then also partially because you said just offhandedly one time that you didn't believe people who said that they couldn't draw because anyone can draw. And I was like, oh, I always thought that I couldn't draw, but maybe I can draw. Like, this is just literally true. <laughs> you saying that <laughs> uh, made me think maybe I can draw. And then I tried drawing and I was like, yeah, I actually can draw things. It's <laughs> you just erase and then kind of look off of something else or whatever like it works you can draw things i can draw things yeah yeah, yeah. And the, the comics on your facebook page lefty libby lib sock memes for libs and sock pups the art is comparable to a lot of art that you see on like internet memes um and some of it's even like kind of better it's got its own kind of feel to it so yeah i like the idea that i'm partially responsible for this so one of the things i really like about people who like quote can't draw when they do draw is there's something stylistically that's really like fun and interesting about like the naive artist not the trained artist you'll see that some of those same features in like children's drawings but like it's a different type of thing i really i really like the aesthetic of it mm. i think my favorite one of the comics that you did the one where there's a referee and he's blowing a whistle and he's <laughs> lifting his hand up in the air and he's like stop right there you're monogamous so you think owning your partner as a literal human property is leftist uh try again sport 
Um, he goes on after that, but the uh, try again sport was where, where I really cracked up. It's just like having the referee say sport. <laughs> yeah, it really. And it's a critique of a, an overbearing leftist polyamorous ideology that says wanting to have monogamous relationships is authoritarian patriarchal capitalism. Yeah, no, likewise, I've liked a bunch of yours, but one of my favorites is just this like happy looking guy. He's reaching for a jar says all the personal benefits of activism on it. He's like, it's been a long road pretending to care about other people, but now it's finally going to pay off. <laughs> and then he opens the jar and all that's inside it is everyone hates you and you'll never be good enough. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> that was one of the early ones that I made that I was actually pretty happy with. The page is uh, fully automated luxury liberalism. And I just was really fascinated with, it's something that we had talked about for a long time. It's just like the definition wobble around the term liberal and liberalism and how isn't liberal was an insult to both the left and the right. And it referred to both the left and the center. And, and I thought it was like fully automated luxury. Communism was a meme. And I thought kind of inverting it and playing off of people's expectations, I could foster an audience that was partially made up of communists, partially made up of centrists and partially made up with right wingers who all read the word liberalism differently and thinking right. I'm making fun of slightly different things, especially like the really early comics. I wanted to do that. But later on, I just started making comics that I thought were funny and just about whatever you wanted. Yeah. And just yeah. wanted to stop boxing myself in. But like the liberalism definition wobble is funny, but I just got kind of burned out on the concept after a while. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so we were a couple comics artists. Yeah. And if I can do it, anyone can do it. Yeah. So you're a comics artist too. If Aaron can do it. <laughs> I mean, you're not one until you act like you have to actually do it to be one. Yeah. I you, mean, you might be one in potential or in some other universe or like in theory, but you contain the spark of a comics artist. I recommend the program GIMP for drawing because you can turn on this like weighted pen, which when you're drawing things with a mouse makes the lines much smoother and it made my drawings look way better than trying to do them in Photoshop. Strongly endorse free Libre and open source software like GIMP on the Seriously Wrong podcast. This can't be right, right? Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by Speaking With Your Lungs Full. I found that it really makes my voice powerful to speak with full lungs. What do you think, Sean? When I fill my lungs up, I find it hard not to speak with a booming voice full of confidence. Another thing I notice is that when my lungs are full of oxygen over and over again, I start to experience a sort of lightheadedness or almost a feeling being quite high or blood oxygen it makes me go, Whoa! my energy levels go up and my voice goes up and there's a lot going on in this uh, experience of me right now. I feel a light cloud over the world that's kind of sparkling from all of the oxygen in my lungs. And best of all, there's no vocal fry. My voice is clear and crisp to the end. These full lungs make recording a cinch. Thanks, full lungs. Proud sponsor of Seriously Wrong. This episode of Seriously Wrong Podcast is also brought to you by... 
our Patreon and PayPal subscribers. Dozens of hardworking, generous, lovely people who make this show possible. Yeah, without these these hardworking, beautiful geniuses who contribute to the show every week, we wouldn't be able to put out nearly as much content, nearly as high quality of content. We wouldn't have the resources that we have. So thank you on behalf of us to everyone who, uh, who chips in and makes a thanks a lot difference. I am here now with none other than Ad Astra Comics, two human beings who together make comics. It's Hugh and Nicole. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about what you do? Yeah, sure. My name is Nicole Burton, and uh, I founded Ad Astra Comics in 2013 in Toronto. I was really interested in exploring the medium of comics to talk about political ideas, and I thought that if I maybe started a website and started doing a little networking that I could find a political comics community. And I didn't exactly find what I initially set out to find, but I did discover that there were a lot of really incredible political comics out there. And um, since then, we have gathered some more people in our collective. We have started a publisher and we've started doing original comics production, which is pretty exciting. So uh, my name is Hugh Goldring, and I write emails to professors asking them if they would like to turn their research into comics. And very occasionally they say yes. And then I do that. I write the comic scripts and then Nicole illustrates them. We also sometimes do work for free. Our very first comic together was a comic about the impact of the deliberate policy of the Royal Canadian Man and Police to slaughter Inuit's sled dogs uh, in order to force the Inuit to settle. And also, we think just out of like some kind of deep-seated cultural prejudice, we don't totally know why they did it. But anyway, we made a comic about that because the RCMP investigated themselves and found that they had killed over a thousand dogs, yes, but that each one was an unrelated incident of dog killing and that there was no policy, which was an outcome that didn't satisfy the Inuit. So they did Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They set up themselves with settlement money, and the comic was intended to promote the findings of the commission and amplify the story that the Inuit had told. And now the two of you have just produced a new comic called The Beast. And that was the result of an email that you sent to a professor uh, that you'd mentioned. So just this one time, uh, we got lucky and the professor emailed us. Or Twitter, right? Yeah, he's hip with it. So he used Twitter. Patrick McCurdy is a professor at the University of Ottawa in communications. And Patrick's work in particular is that he's building a database of media images about the tar sands. So there's like photos of protests. The stuff that the oil industry puts together is really like, I could talk about it forever because it's so incredibly sinister. They'll just take a photo of some beautiful cupcakes dusted with icing sugar. And then it's like energy equals cupcakes telling you that you need the tar sands to give you cupcakes. Or they do one where there's a single black father cooking dinner for his daughter and there's soft piano music playing and the daughter's wearing a tutu and it's all beautiful. And it's a gas stove and Enbridge is telling you how it's an indispensable part of your family life. And on the other side, you have environmental NGOs just producing stock images of environmental degradation, like huge holes in the earth and ducks covered in oil and shit like this. When we started the project with Patrick, it was a great brainstorm, really. I mean, we just kind of looked at public relations around the tar sands from the perspective of the tropes that you might expect to find from the various parties that are involved. And 
looking at the kind of the weird ways that advertising gets into your brain and helps you to think of certain compulsions or anxieties. And that's the thing about it is that the oil industry isn't sold as a product in Canada. It's sold as a feeling. It's supposed to be this ubiquitous thing that we all participate in and we should feel good about it. Because they're trying to stop a conversation from happening, right? Like it's not like with the environmentalists where even we want to get out uh, in front of the problem and be like, hey, we're poisoning the planet and also violating Indigenous sovereignty and having hella health problems for the communities affected by this and everything needs to change. It's like that's a much tougher pitch than stop thinking about this. Enjoy your cupcakes. It's like an irresistible kind of pitch that they have. But so Patrick's archive is all freely available on the internet at this website, mediatoil.ca, which if you're interested in oil advertising, a lot of it is unfortunately just pictures of protests, which if you've seen one, you've seen them all. But there's some great examples of oil industry advertising on both sides. (laughs) By far, the thing that's blown my mind the most about this is that there are grassroots pro-oil groups that nobody pays. They just like spontaneously self-organize because they love oil so much. (laughs) That's wild. (laughs) Have you ever seen that ad? And it's like uh, a picture of two lesbians. And it says on the ad, in Saudi Arabia, lesbians get the death penalty. In Canada, we think lesbians are hot. Shouldn't we get our oil from somewhere that thinks lesbians are hot? I think I have seen seen that one. It makes me want to patriotically buy oil where they find lesbians hot. We were describing how that ad, which was really more of a meme than an ad, is like on the bleeding edge of petro-homo nationalism. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, and when did you first start doing political comics and, and publishing? I've been drawing since I was a little kid. When I was about 12, I was really interested in exploring some of my Jewish family background. And I ordered a copy of Art Spiegelman's Mouse through like a scholastic book catalog at school. And I was particularly interested in ordering it because it said that I needed a parental signature because it included explicit content. Oh, that's tempting. And I thought that that book was incredible and I wanted to find more books like it. Now, I wasn't totally aware of how pioneering Mouse was at the time. I didn't know that it was the first graphic novel to win a Pulitzer. I didn't know that it had sparked tons of controversy by being criticized for taking on a a serious subject like the Holocaust in a comic form. And comics can't be about serious subjects, blah, blah, blah. But the question is, when did you start making them? There's just no clear answer for that. Okay, so the first published comic that I did was in 2013. I teamed up with the Graphic History Collective to produce a comic about a coal miners strike and the role of the women in the coal miners strike in Corbin, British Columbia in 1935. So that was my like official first finished comic was 2013. When I met Nicole, I was a freelance writer living in Toronto, writing literally anything that I could for money. Like this guy who had bipolar and he was writing a memoir about having bipolar. And he worked as a used BMW salesman and he had a terrible Coke and porn addiction. And the book was just all about how Jesus helped him out of his coke and porn addiction, but also it was just like laced with so much misogyny. He like wanted a Canada Arts Council grant to finish it, didn't he? Uh, well, I think he would just generally thought that he could get it published and that there would be a market for it. Yeah. But I told him like, this is a story of self-restoration through Jesus. Like there is a market for that, but that market might not be that receptive to the fact that the book is also heavily misogynistic. He's like a very personally affable person to meet, but like the, the book was appalling. Anyway, I saw this ad on Craigslist that was like, do you want to write about comic books and social justice? And I was like, do I? This is the biggest Craigslist scam I've ever seen. There's no way this is a real job. And sure enough, 
I wrote an article and I went to meet Nicole so she could pay me and she tried to cheat me. She was supposed to pay me $25 and she only paid me $20 and I had to call her out right there in the middle of the Toronto anarchist fair. Let's just air out all of our dirty laundry right here, right now. She actually forgot how much she said she was going to pay me. And when I brought it up, she was deeply apologetic and did pay me and then offered me more work and then (laughs) fell in love with me. How much of the story can I tell? (laughs) I guess it was about just only a few months later that we were starting to talk about equity in the business. And I was just like, well, I don't really care about the business. I would prefer it to be a co-op. I would prefer for it to be a collective. So this sounds great. So Nicole kind of like partnered with me to turn the business into something profitable because it was just like an expensive hobby that was losing lots of money when we met. It was a really cool hobby. But like we had a Ninja Turtle pizza party at the punk house we lived in that had a skate ramp instead of a living room, which only sounds cool until you realize like, man, I don't skateboard and I do like couches. So it's like, oh, that sounds like thunder outside of my bedroom every day, (laughs) every night. Still better than the hardcore shows that went until 4 a.m. and left a (laughs) bunch of passed out plaid clad bros asleep in our half pipe. Anyway, you're forgetting the point. The pizza party was meant to be a fundraiser for a political comics artist that we were bringing up from New York City. And at the end of the night, after like 17 pizzas and six bottles of sake and the house had been cleared out, it was just like, oh, we like broke even. (laughs) We like didn't do this fundraiser properly. It was the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. (laughs) So we had a conversation. We decided that publishing would be a good way to make money, which was a huge mistake. Really dumb. (laughs) Don't recommend to anybody that they try and do that. If you want to make money doing publishing, what you should do is sit down ahead of time and very carefully read the various grant guidelines. And you should publish books that are exactly designed to meet grant qualifications so that you're eligible for grants down the line. This is how Mad Max got made, by the way. Anyway, we didn't do that. We just went with projects we thought were cool. Our first project was a North American edition of an Indian comic about women and feminism in India called Drawing the Line, Indian Women Fight Back. It went really great. The crowdfunder, we surpassed our goal. We printed 3,000 copies. We partnered with some South Asian women's associations who do the organizing against domestic violence. It just was an incredible project. I think because it was so uplifting. It was a great opportunity to talk with people about how feminism is, yes, important, but how we need to have an international outlook on feminism. And that was really well received. The following book was a little bit of a tougher sell. Intersectional feminism, popular right now. Hot. (laughs) Mining and extraction projects in Canada. Not. Not so hot. (laughs) Not, Not as sexy. We were luckily with the support of some awesome people associated with Mining Watch. We were able to raise enough money to print like a thousand copies. And then after we printed it, Amnesty International was like, oh, we'd love to use this in our uh, our youth programming. And now they're trying to have some kind of contest for teenagers and young adults to make comics about extraction. Which, by the way, if anybody listening is interested in making a comic about mining justice and getting paid by Amnesty International to do it, send us an email. You're not likely to get paid, though. It's a competition. So you probably won't get paid unless you're really good. (laughs) The next comic we did was Seth Tabachman's War in the Neighborhood. Yeah, War in the Neighborhood, I feel, was kind of like the first comic that I felt like was a a perfect fit. There's a feeling to War in the Neighborhood that really speaks to Ad Astra Comics' perspective as a group of activists and former activists in terms of the lessons that we can learn from participating in social movements. I had hella Occupy flashbacks reading through it the first time because it's all about like 
okay, we're building this new world. There's this kind of utopian project, but we're occupying this space that has already been occupied by people with addiction issues and serious mental health stuff who maybe don't have any other homes. And there's class tensions rising to the surface. And then there's all kinds of gendered violence happening that isn't being addressed properly. Stop me if any of this sounds familiar to you. Uh, On the subject of politics and cartoons and art, like what advantages are there to communicating through cartoons rather than YouTube videos or books or articles, think pieces, headlines. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get all Marshall McLooney about this, but I think it's going to be hard not to. The medium is definitely the message and there are advantages and disadvantages to different media. And I don't want to be like comics are the one true medium, even though sometimes I kind of think that. But video information is often intentionally or unintentionally pretty emotionally manipulative. And the juxtaposition of images and then often the music I find to be particularly sort of driving you one way or another. But then on the other hand, with books, like it's a real investment. And like our joke at anarchist book fairs is like, come to our table and buy something you'll actually read. Like, I don't know, some people are really good about that, about like going to the anarchist book fair and buying five books and then reading them all. And then when they come back next year, they've read them all. But like, I'm lending out a copy of Against the Fascist Creep today that I haven't finished reading, even though I got it in in the winter. And so I think that comics are kind of a happy medium of like being a slow deliberate medium because you're reading, but then maybe not being as dense as regular books. And also, I think that there's like an uncountable number of social issues and political issues that if you care about what's happening in the world, you want to at least have a primer. And I think that comics offer us a really exciting opportunity to get a primer on a subject in an hour or two, as opposed to spending a week reading a format that may work for some people, but doesn't always work for everyone. An advantage of short form comics is that they're like very nearly memes and they can be shared around. Also with the long form ones, I think that they can be good when people have language barriers. Like if you're not a fluent English speaker, it can be helpful to have the images to help provide context clues about what the dialogue means. And then when it comes to political comics, it can be hard to wrap your head around a political subject. And a lot of stuff that gets written is really theory heavy. I won't say I'd never seen a comic that was so drenched in theory that it was almost incoherent because I definitely have. But it's a lot less common to because you have to really not understand the medium in order to drown it in text like that. Yeah, I'm actually, Sean, I want to call bullshit on your question. I just feel like, I don't know, comics are fun, man. Like, you know, like we don't need an explanation necessarily for like why we might want to use them. And I I just feel like anybody who doesn't realize that comics are fun, I don't know where they've been. Well, that's a great answer to call them fun. That's a good reason, as any. We should talk about what the book we're working on right now is about, because, you know, I talked about Patrick's work and Patrick's work is great, but it does not actually super germane to our extremely Canadian comic. So I say that the comic is extremely Canadian, A, because that helps me explain why the crowdfunder isn't doing quite as well as I might like it to be. And more importantly, because it just is straight up an incredibly Canadian story. It's about two Nova Scotians who can't get work in Nova Scotia and go to Alberta to work. But because they're art school grads, they go to Edmonton to work in advertising and they end up working on opposite sides of the oil question. So one of them is a photographer for environmental NGOs, and the other one is working for a regular ad agency that takes corporate and government clients. And so it's all like pro-oil stuff. And over the course of the comic, it teases out all of this stuff about what does it mean to have a job that doesn't totally fuck the world up? And it's like, is there really any escaping that? What does a good image of the oil sands look like if there is such a thing? What is an honest image? And along the way, there's like all kinds of stuff about 
crust punks and workplace sexual harassment and vegan wings. And it's very like aggressively millennial. <laughs> Buy our book. It's got vegan wings in it. <laughs> Actually, for this podcast, we should say buy our book. It has flagrant Murray Bookchin references. In it. <laughs> yeah. I have to be honest, when I was reading uh, my digital copy and I got to the vegan wings, I spit out my coffee everywhere and I ordered five <laughs> copies immediately. Good to know. Good to know that that, uh, <laughs> that, that engineered scene really worked for you. <laughs> Uh, so if you, uh, dear listeners, want to pick up The Beast or other comics published by Ad Astra Comics, you can go to the Ad Astra Comics web store at squareup.com. Uh, there'll be a link in the description of this podcast, or you can also go to adastracomics.com, and that's comics with an X. But if you live somewhere in the United States or Canada, check out at the end of the episode uh, where we're going to have a fun little contest for listeners. Because I bought multiple copies. That's literally true. And I'm going to give two of them away. Um, so uh, find out at the end of the episode how to get one. That's so incredible. I'm so excited. <laughs> that is incredible. And now we're going to head on over to the Seriously Wrong comic book recommendation corner, where Hugh has generously offered to recommend us a comic book that is near and dear to his heart. So I'm going to talk briefly about Transmetropolitan, which is a comic by Warren Ellis which is about a near future where this bald journalist who is very clearly based on Hunter S. Thompson and also Warren Ellis himself is exploring this futuristic dystopian America during a presidential election. And he's been like hiding in a mountain under an enormous beard, but he's contractually obligated to return to a filthy, endless city. And it's just like clearly an amoral future civilization where people eat baby flakes and pee in each other's mouths as part of a Christmas ritual. This is an incredible comic, by the way. It's very, uh, I believe the kids would call it extra. <laughs> like the future city hellscape is just like new religions every day. There are cults on the streets. Toxic. Everything's turned up to 11. Yeah. But the, the coverage of the political campaign is remarkable. And there's like two people running uh, in the election, one called The Beast, who's kind of Nixonian, and another one called The Smiler, who anticipated Barack Obama so, Barack Obama. so perfectly. Yeah. And I, I just like couldn't recommend this comic enough to people. Sean, since when have you been making comics? When did you make your first political comic? Uh, I can't remember the first time I made like a political. It was pretty recently, too. It was like around the time that I started doing fully automated luxury liberalism. That was really when I... Did you not do the Occupy comics? Oh, yeah, yeah no, I, I did. Yeah, Occupy comics would be my first then. Yeah, so that'd be 2012. It's like my first toes in that water. And which actually I found out, I talked to the guy who does great moments in leftism and he told me that seeing Occupy Comics randomly somewhere inspired him to make political comics oh, wow. and like get into it. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like really over the moon about that. Yeah. Occupy Comics. And it was totally like a an exhaustion with political diplomacy and like all these different groups vying for control of the political sphere at like Occupy Winnipeg and then the kind of Facebook environment around Occupy Vancouver because I moved back to Vancouver after the Occupy camps both kind of like fell down but got involved in people who were involved in the Occupy here as someone who was like never actually physically present at the camp and I was just I don't know I just wanted to kind of make fun of people but like not to them mm -hmm. <laughs> the grassroots left is such fertile soil for 
satirization and mockery, particularly when you're like right in there in the shit. You're just like, man, I just really want to have a laugh about this situation with somebody. I mentioned to Hugh on Facebook chat that I've been arguing with some trans exclusionary radical feminists recently, which I never really had like mano a mano arguments with before. They were more of like an idea, this like floating out there bad thing that I had never seen up close. But I got to say, it's so weird, like the Jekyll and Hyde thing. Like you're talking to someone, they're like, oh, I'm a feminist. Here's my ideas about these different things. You're like, yes, this is totally acceptable. And then all of a sudden, it's just like the lighting in the room changes and they like suddenly have long teeth and they're like, (laughs) it's a really weird thing. So Hugh was mentioning to me, I don't know if if you want to talk about it, but that you argue with TERFs also (laughs) compulsively, Nicole. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, no, not- I really try not to personally <laughs> no, it's our, our friend Amy who I won't identify any further because the last thing she needs is more turfs to argue with <laughs> yeah no I, I have argued with turfs but it's just like it's not a productive use of your time like they're, they're like tankies also they're like turf tankies out there too so it's just like a grand slam of shitty politics Ah, the old TNT that I try to avoid. It's just like, I don't even know how to put it other than we're not living in the same reality. There's like basic questions of the way the world works that we disagree on. And it's not possible to arrive at a common understanding with people like that. And I I don't know that that's totally true because the aforementioned friend who made a hobby of trolling turfs, like one, one or two over using civil discourse. But I, I think it was one or two out of hundreds. So... I don't know, like they have a big lie machine, like it's like conspiracy theorists, kind of like if you if you go down the turf rabbit hole, of like turf websites and stuff, they have all these memes and they talk about like peak trans, which is the moment at which they became a turf because they're like trans ideology has gone too far. And then they like they curate tweets from angry trans people and put them out of context. So it's like maybe this trans woman has been like monstered on the Internet for months and she like snaps back, like, go kill yourself, turf. And then like all of those are cut out of context and put on a wall to be like, look, these aggressive trans people want women to turf, die. Turf genocide. Yeah, turf, yeah. <laughs> turf is a slur. Turf, turfs are like, I think Megan Murphy recently wrote an article comparing trans people to Hitler, if I'm remembering that right. She was like pretty on the low low about being a turf until quite recently. And then I think that after she got fired from Rabble, she stopped. Or I think she quit, actually. I, I want to get this right. I think she quit working at Rabble over a controversy that involved her. And I think they took down one of her articles or removed her from an editor position or something. And she responded by quitting. And since then, I think she's been more open about being a turf. The reason that I originally brought up TERFs is because I wanted to pivot to this really key concept, I think, for the public relations war against these horrifying strains of leftism. And something that I think has a lot of resonance to uh, people who are low on the political engagement spectrum is the the alt prefix, which has signified not just the right, but a horrifying, strange version of the right. So just throw alt on anything like the word tanky, we could leave it behind and replace it with, you know, an alt communist. It's a communist who talks about killing people or turfs like that's an alt feminist. Sounds edgy. I want to know more. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a weird inversion because the whole point of calling it the alt-right was to hide the fact that actually they're just Nazis. Like it was a rebrand, a successful rebrand, really, on Mm -hmm. the the part of Richard Spencer and like white nationalists in general. If we want to talk about uh, successful PR campaigns of grassroots movements, I think we could talk about how the rebranding of 
fascism and Nazism under alt-right is about as successful as you could expect it to be. Yeah, I mean, they got all the papers using it. They call them alt-right. They, got a, like they, they get it. an audience where they would never have had an audience before. I, yeah, it's great for them because if every time they talked, the papers quoted them as like local Nazi Richard Spencer, I think that that would not help them. Can I also just talk about, some, this is something that I got beef on, but it, it, here's the thing. Racists, they don't give a shit what your opinion is about police brutality or racism. But what's interesting on the left is that we share memes that we agree with and that we totally disagree with. Like that oil industry, that grassroots oil sands lesbian ad that got shared by more progressive people than people who agreed with it because they were outraged and they were offended. But this is how the alt-right has is able to become viral in ways where their opinions do not represent that many people. But we are sharing it to be like, can you believe this shit? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, it's, kind of, it's a poor social media hygiene to make your platform yeah, should, yeah. the, an amplification venue for specifically ideas and articles that you find so extra offensive that you must comment on them. Sean, if you're walking down the street and you hear these two people having a conversation and one of them has a really, really bad idea. How long are you going to be like, wow, that idea is so bad. I'm going to go and tell some other people and like we're going to share in it like it has entertainment value. And then I'm going to go and tell other people like how much time <laughs> do we want to allocate to bad ideas as entertainment. I'll take a copy of that horrible idea and I'm going to place it in a place that has my boss, my coworkers. <laughs> and, like I want to make sure that my grandma can see it. Everyone that I used to know in high school. Yeah, I really want to spread it around that contagious, toxic idea. I remember thinking about this when that Kelly Leach video came out when she's running for leader of the conservative party here in Canada. There's like all these awkward cuts and like just this horrible video. And then everyone I knew shared it. And I was like, man, I'm sure some of these people sharing it have a racist uncle or two in their friends list. And it's like, we're just pumping this video up to all these racist uncles, even with like a yeah. negative comment, like the video is more powerful than a comment. Right. And aren't we all smart that we acknowledge that Kelly Leach is like dog whistling or whatever. But then it's just like, well, what is she saying? that other people, they don't have time for our like meta-analysis. What's resonating with what she's saying and what they're here? You know what I mean? I, I, you're dead on there. I've been feeling this way, but TERFs actually like, they're already, I mean, they're not totally marginal, right? And like, sometimes they make like scary alliances, like teaming up with right-wing legislators in order to keep trans people out of the appropriate bathrooms. It's not like they're never dangerous, but it's like that organizing that they're doing can be confronted with other organizing. It doesn't need to constantly like... I just don't want to treat them like they're part of the left. But then it's tough because it's actually like lots of baby boomer leftists are low key turfs. They just don't talk about it. I don't know what to do about that. Well, I mean, you deal with that with popular education and, you know, it's just it's a long game. Like I didn't know anyone who was trans until I was in my 20s. I didn't know spaces where it was safe to be out and queer when I was in my teens. Let's just like. There are some things that it sometimes takes some time and it, it becomes especially difficult when people are reluctant to learn new things. But that's where we're at, you know. On the subject of these horrifying alliances that TERFs make, I've just seen recently in, in one of the groups that I've posted from time to time that has a, a lax policy on banning and therefore has horrifying ideologies represented, is that I've literally seen this sort of ad hoc caucus between the trans-exclusionary radical feminists and the alt-right people because they have the exact same position on the bathroom debate. They have the exact same position on the role of transgender people in society. Or, or It's so fascinating, like, were they even specifically when pressed, choose to not condemn the idea of a white ethno state. Like, hey, you're agreeing with someone who's into a white ethno state. Like, 
are you ready to condemn that specifically? And they just like disappear from the thread because they've got this like temporary alliance, this weird kind of tribal, like, no, we're caucusing now. We're working together. It's, it's really hard when you're online. It's really hard to tell what is at the bottom of people's thinking around this. Like, I think I've had two, maybe three in-person conversations with people who would be terps in some degree online if they were to express their opinions online. And I think that I I don't even want to characterize their position as well-informed. So like, why am I engaging with them on this issue? That's kind of my attitude about it. Like one of them was coming from a place of feeling very personally hurt by something that had happened that was represented as being a part of a younger trans-friendly generation of feminism. And then the other person, I think, just like had never met a trans person in their life. And it's just like, you know, I don't know how much space I want to give to somebody's position when they claim to be informed about something when they're just not informed at all. Well, some of them do think that they're informed, but all of their information is made up. So in that way, it's a conspiracy theory. Like not every turf is a conspiracy theorist, but there's a significant overlap in terms of like there's a set of turf conspiracy theories about trans people. It's not born. Is there like a high council of trans people that run the world? Is that? Yeah. I mean, A, they think that trans people control society or. Or like I, not con- like I have run into people who have said basically that, although I, they were more alt righty. But oh, the globalists are all trans. Yeah, yeah. It was like the idea of, of a gay transgender Jewish power structure. Like the queer community and the Jewish community are actually behind the scenes. You know, shaking hands, making deals, yeah. running the place. And that sounds fucking dope. Yeah, to me. it sounds good. I want in on that. Other than the running <laughs> the world part, no one should be running the world. And now it's time for Great Alliances of Convenience Throughout History. In 2017, a group of Marxist-Leninist Maoists and a group of men's right activist Kekistanis joined forces in Pittsburgh with a shared goal of killing all the liberals. While they were too small on their own, if they worked together, their dream might be possible. Oh, nice. You just got one. I got him. Oh, that liberal's so dead. High five. You know, I wouldn't say this in public. I disagree with your end goal of a white ethno state. In fact, the reason I want to kill liberals is because I don't think they're hard enough on you. But yeah. I got to say, you're damn good at killing liberals. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I guess the reason I want to kill liberals ultimately is because I think they're the same as you in every way. And I'm really opposed to what you stand for. Mm. But obviously, like the part about you killing liberals... I love. I love that some liberals are stupid enough to kill each other. That's fucking killer. Right. And like, who says, just because we have these other disagreements, we can't work together on this, present a united front to the public. Liberals are bad. Liberals need to die. We both agree on this. Yeah. I mean, you got to be pragmatic. Like this liberal kind of like purity politics. Oh, I only want to achieve something that's pure and perfect. I mean, well, I do want to achieve something pure and perfect, to be honest. The white ethno state. Me too. Well, that's not pure. That's impure and gross. Yeah. When your unicorn rainbow land founded on the skulls of... uh, We won't get into it now, but uh, suffice to say what you believe is... for later. Yeah, what you believe is uh, wretched. The important thing to remember is that liberals are like 95% of people and 1% of people can't kill 95% of people, but 3% of people might be able to. And, you know, we're doing a pretty good job of it right now, killing all these libs, kicking ass, taking names. I mean, if there's one thing I agree with you on is that libs are scum and they deserve the bullet. I'm more of a helicopter man and you're more of a... Up against the wall. You know, different strokes for different folks and 
got to take your allies where you can find them. You know, you're, so, you're so dumb, you probably don't even realize that after we kill all the liberals, we're totally going to kill all you guys, and then we're going to implement communist utopia. But, you know, that's what I like about you. You're, you're a pawn mm, yeah. in my clan. That's my favorite part yeah. about you. Yeah, you're, you're a bit of a pawn yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. Not just the... We'll see about that. I think I'm the queen. Even then, you're ultimately just going to be pwning yourself by trying to live in a society that fundamentally doesn't work. So, yeah. well, I guess you. we'll see. I guess we'll see what yeah, we'll fundamentally see. We'll doesn't see. work. Yeah, we'll see. Oh, there's a liberal over there. I got him. Ah! Fucking libs. And we'll see you next time on Great Alliances of Convenience Throughout History. I'm fascinated with this line of discussion about like poor online hygiene and also just like really, really bad self-defeating tactics. And it's, it sounds to me like this is something that you've put a little thought into. Well, actually, yeah, if I could go on for a minute, <laughs> I have <really> strong <laughs> feelings about this. I don't troll and I don't respond to trolls. I am pretty non-confrontational when it comes to being online. But I have come to see that I cannot just post information as a personal emotional vent Online, as much as I want to, I have to acknowledge that for everyone who I'm speaking to who totally gets what I'm talking about and complaining about and they're like, ugh, girl, yes, you know, agreed 100%, whatever. There are like 10 or 20 people on my Facebook who are either younger or have been less involved in politics who actually don't really understand what's being discussed. Then when I go back and I look at the way that I'm talking about something, I realize, wow, this would be really difficult to understand the nuance of of what is happening here and what I'm actually frustrated with, because I haven't approached this post like I am uh, educating somebody or giving them a primer on, say, you know, police brutality in Toronto and the special investigations unit or residential schools in Canada or rape culture or whatever. It's like when I am just expressing something because I want to vent and I just want other people to hear me and understand what I'm talking about, that looks very different than trying to give people the basic facts to understand something. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we kind of create some echo chambers and online communities where we're talking about issues. It looks like we're talking about issues, but we're not actually breaking those issues down and talking about what the language means, what the context is, what the history may be. And it can lead to some really kind of bizarre misunderstandings. I know exactly what you're talking about. I think you're spot on where people are putting the catharsis ahead of the communication, which I don't want to say there isn't a space for or to say like, because I just have all these little leftists on my shoulder being like, oh, is, you're saying it's their job to always not be focused on catharsis. But like you have to also pragmatically when you like look at the effects of what they're saying and like what a great screenshot that makes out of context for the people who would wish not nothing more than for all of us to be destroyed. It's like you have to be a little bit conscious of that or at least be conscious of the medium in which that catharsis is coming out. Yeah, I like a pretty intense dude about means needing to line up with ends. But still, it's like when I hear the way that people's moral judgments get injected into these conversations about tactics when you're being like, maybe we should be careful of what we say and how it looks. And someone's like, you're tone policing or you're like derailing by bringing this up. Well, it's like on a certain level, maybe, but it's also like on another level, we need to win. And I like, I I would never condone like gulags or autocratic centralized authority in order to win. But like keeping our mouths shut or like venting in private in order to like not embarrass ourselves. Like, yeah, we were having a conversation with like a, an older cartoonist whose work we really like 
on Twitter, but he like tweeted this cartoon he did at us that was like the message was liberals. Once we beat up the Nazis, we're going to beat you up for sympathizing with Nazis. And it's just like, what an unbelievably bad take. Like, the bar is so low to like be more appealing to a regular person than a, a Nazi. Nazi. You just have to not <laughs> threaten them with physical violence. That's where the bar is. That's the one thing you have to not do. And here they are. Here, like, here he is. And like all the hundreds of people. I'm disappointed you haven't done a comic about liberals getting the bullet yet. Yeah. <laughs> the violence towards Nazis thing, people actually support, generally speaking. Punching <laughs> a Nazi is fine to the average person. But there's also that other thing that people are disproportionately hip to it compared to like other trends on the left. But it's like the Nazi bleed where people refer to things outside of literal Nazism as Nazism. Mm -hmm. And it's not always clear to what degree they're literally calling them a Nazi or using it just as a phrase or whatever. And then that's taken out of context. It's shown to all the the normie liberals and they're like, oh, so they're going to punch Nazis, huh? Your quote Nazis, you mean anyone who doesn't read exactly the same books? Like an Obviously, that in most contexts, that's like a horrible understanding that they're reflecting, like they, they're missing a lot of context. But then also it's like, well, some I do know people who say whack shit like that. And it's like, I'm not going to like call them out every time or like follow them to their Facebook wall and, or whatever, you know, but just like, I think they're not serious. They're not a credible threat. They're not actually going to go around punching liberals. It's not like, but you run into it and it's like, oh man. Social media feels consistently more fraught. Before uh, Occupy, I was like one of a handful of people I had on my Facebook just because of who I knew, not because of the medium in general, posting regularly about politics. And after Occupy, I would say I was one of maybe like 50 or 60. And since the Trump election, it's like incredible the engagement that's come out of that, which is like deeply annoying because I know in my heart that uh, some like smiling, vapid liberal is going to beat Trump in an election and then everyone is going to go back to not paying attention. And just like so frustrating to know that ahead of time because it's already happened. But it, it's real, you know, it's like, I, I don't know, I subscribe to your politics of liberalism as the good future as opposed to liberalism <laughs> as the bad past. I really like to kind of troll alt communists with that, but <laughs> I've recently switched to more saying utopia rather than liberalism just for clarity. Cause like part of the joke is that it's an impenetrable definition to like, <laughs> but you just say yeah, like straight up utopianism or like, yeah, good liberalism, like the heart of it. Like when your great aunt is at Christmas dinner and she says, Hey, I think it's good that gay people can get married. And you're like, shit, woke take aunt. <laughs> the thing that she thinks she's participating in is this very simple, good thing, like be nice to each other. And so I like taking that version of liberalism and trying to extend it to its conclusion and then tell that woke aunt, like, what if we abolished prisons? And she, it, like she's, she's, she's not ready, but you can. She'll throw... be down. She'll be down by, by Easter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. A few, a few holidays from now, Yeah, uh, she's going to come here and she's going to share it like it was her own idea. Forget the whole first conversation Thank happened. You. Send her a few spicy memes. She'll be ready to go in no time. Speaking of abolishing prisons, actually, we were having a good laugh at Conrad Black's expense earlier tonight because after he went to prison, he wrote a searing op-ed about how inhumane prisons are. <laughs> 
And it's like, you know, if the prison that Conrad Black went to was so bad that Conrad Black didn't like it, what would he think about a real prison? It's like for somebody to be incapable of acknowledging the basic humanity of indigenous people and talk about how colonialism is good, but it just takes about 100 days in prison for him to be like, (laughs) abolish prison. (laughs) I mean, the lesson here is that we should jail all rich people. We should probably occupy Conrad Black's land and take his resources probably i think maybe he'll understand i do like the idea of locking up all rich people maybe not in perpetuity but like when you run into like a hardcore revolutionary communist who's saying like we gotta kill all the rich or whatever say like no no, let's moderate let's put them in jail for a hundred days and then see what their (laughs) op-ed looks like maybe they need to go in for another hundred but just keep those op-eds coming and see (laughs) paris hilton didn't last 72 hours like i don't think it's gonna take that long to, to bring about a bit of a collapse but oh. i mean we're talking hypotheticals here <laughs> the woke op-eds pour out sooner than 100 days <laughs> we don't condone imprisoning anyone awkwardly wait we awkwardly <laughs> don't condone it or we don't condone awkward imprisonment like, yeah, it needs to be a really like, smooth imprisonment no, it is like the situation is awkward that we don't condone imprisoning anyone because sometimes it where it's like necessary for us to be like no we shouldn't even lock up like x right-wing asshole it's like not a fun intervention it's, just, it's irrelevant me. it's just irrelevant for you and me to be talking about who should be getting locked up it's a waste of time well but it's it, like people go down that road right and like carcerality creeps into all kinds of nominally no, progressive I'm, spaces yeah, agreed and people are like, oh, yeah, let's like imprison this group and then that'll solve the problem. But it's like, believe it or not, prisons don't solve many problems, yeah. no matter who you throw in them. Hello and welcome to Confirmation Bias News. Today at the top of the hour, the global ultra-rich have been released from prison after a six-month sentence following the wildly popular and democratically decided upon form of reparations where all rich people were put in jail for six months and they were also shown two months of what it was like to live in poverty and squalor before that. The idea behind the policy was that rich people being so disconnected from everyday experience was clouding their political objectives and policy making. It's now been two and a half weeks since the ultra-rich were released from prison and the ad hoc organization Coalition of the Ultra-Rich released a statement today saying, we learned our lesson, quote, big time. In a press conference today, they detailed their plans for rectifying all that had been done wrong. Let me say, we've been through an ordeal. Lesson learned, big time. I was jet-setting around the world, I was eating caviar, and uh, I had no idea what it was like to be poor. You knew there was this abstract concept called a poor person, and Mm -hmm. like you saw them around sometimes, but the idea that they had a subjectivity that was like mine, and that their experience, which was obviously very harsh, was experienced by a subjectivity that was like mine was something that just hadn't occurred to me. And at first I was like, okay, why prison for so long? Why prison for six months? I haven't done anything. I'm innocent. They made it clear during the uh, section of the day where we went to the reading group, watched videos of stories of people sent to jail for nonviolent crime who are innocent. We read a lot about kind of the history of racism in the prison system, and it really made the day-to-day 
prison life really popped the political message. Yeah, message received big time. And, you know, we're rich, we're powerful, we have a lot of money, we have a lot of influence, and that means we can make change in the world. And so we're happy to announce big changes are coming. And we're definitely number three, I'll just say now, number three is abolish global poverty on board 100%. We're just talking about the steps to that. Number one, we just have to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. Yeah, I don't know who got the authority to put all rich people in jail for six months, this whole eight-month program. Um, it's, I guess my, I'm told it was democratic. So we're going to have to close that loophole real quick. And it completely conflicts with the amount of property I have. Like, if you have this much property and you do something wrong, you forfeit some of your property. It's only once you're out of property that you start looking at something like jail as a punishment. Yeah. Like, that's just common sense. It's like these things that happened to us are so wrong. They shouldn't happen to anyone, least of all us. Look at it this way. The way it was before, the only people who experienced poverty were poor people. And that's horrible. Yeah, that's horrible. That's I know what bad. it's like to we're, be poor. Listen yeah, to me. Yeah. Whew. And then after this horrible policy was introduced, the amount of people experiencing poverty increased by quite a lot by the number of all rich people. From a utilitarian perspective, it's an absolute gong show. Horrible violence. Ending global poverty. So first step, end it for us. That's easy. We know how to do that. Just mm. turn the clock back, back make it like it was, was before. But also make it illegal for anything like that to happen in the future. If that involves some sort of restriction on the democratic mechanism, if that's mm. going to involve um, affecting who authorizes the press to print what, I don't know. We're going to look into that. So the second step, which is really crucial, is to find out who is responsible for this. Who caused this program? What were all the steps? We're launching a full-scale investigation to find out how did this happen and how can we stop it from happening. You know, limiting democracy, limiting freedom of the press, those are just ideas. We don't know how this pernicious thing spread, but we're going to find out. Yeah, and if you're guilty, I mean, just turn yourself in. Why are you delaying the pursuit of ending global poverty? Now, this, you know, might not happen in our lifetimes, but we're confident that our offspring, protected by the actions we take today, mm -hmm. will in the future carry out step three. Yeah, and we'll leave them a, a sizable inheritance to make sure that they're able to fulfill those dreams. An inheritance with a note on it that says, note, earmarked for ending global poverty. Yeah. And I mean, they're good kids. So I love my kids. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I also have great kids. It's kind of also like groups that have like picked their favorite geopolitical superpowers and they've got like a list of like, well, these are the countries we like and these are the countries that we hate and we think are the embodiment of evil. And it's like, well, what, what have you ever, ever done that affects the relationship between Syria and Turkey? Because I'm all ears. Like, what, what did you do? Did you make a comment that was so blistering that like a secret service agent from Turkey read it? And like it changed their outlook. I don't understand what they even think that they're. And it's the same with fantasizing about who you would imprison or something. Like, I yeah. like utopian thinking. I like being like, oh, it, we should have uh, cars that do this or whatever. That's a productive <laughs> exercise. It's not a wish list of your shit list. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like prison it's productive utopia. to think of utopia because it's just like, okay, yeah, how <laughs> are we going to transition away from fossil fuels? How are we going to make sustainable? transitions that are like very uh, real and very difficult. It's totally irrelevant to talk about who we're going to imprison. It's not real. 
It's like, like Dungeons and Dragons. It's like I can make up a, a title for myself, too. I just want to <laughs> say that I've decided and like I'm I'm contrite here because I've been very guilty of this, that it is mean to call Maoists and people like that LARPers because LARPers never hurt anyone. And it's just like really not fair. It's mean to, to LARPers. It's an innocuous it, hobby for harmless docile creatures. <laughs> It's like maybe one time someone forgot to put the foam on their sword and they like gave their other friend a bruise. But it's like they have probably not created a single gulag. There was somebody who did a political comic recently that was like Fidel Castro and an aide in Cuba. And the aide runs in and is like, Fidel, Fidel, a, a Trotskyist in North America has released a statement supporting the revolution. The great day is upon us. And Fidel like lights a cigar and is like, muy bueno. <laughs> That's just an old great moment from leftism. Ah, oh, darn. Okay. But now, now that you brought up Cuba and Trotskyism, I think you have to tell your Mao story. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, Sean, I would be really curious to hear your quick summary of what Mao is. This is, this is what I understand of Mao. And I've only run into them a few times in real life because I generally avoid the um, panel on issues circuit. But that's where I've seen them a few times, like talkers, and then it's time for questions and someone gets up and they're acting really weird. And then whispers go through the audience that they're from Mao and you're like, oh, okay, shit. So it's mobilization against war and occupation. And there was a big blistering article about them that came out by someone who defected from them. Oh, okay. I can't remember their name off the top of my head, but it was just... They basically said that it was like a cult-like atmosphere and that they were like stealing parents' credit cards and using it to support their like revolutionary group. And it's run by some like weird guy that only some people in Mao like get to meet in person. He exists uh, only as a puff of smoke uh, and is not available to the public. Yes. Did we, <laughs> didn't we see him in the road when we were in Vancouver? Uh, we did. Yeah, it was after an anti-war rally and they're at the art gallery very regularly. Yeah, I don't know how deep we want to go into like the roots of what is Mao. And I also can't speak to like what Mao has become since I left the organization in 2008. But okay, well, the TLDR of it is in the fallout of the grassroots mass movement that existed in response and resistance to the Gordon Campbell provincial government in the early O's. There was a great deal of momentum around anti-poverty organizing in the downtown east side in Vancouver. And there was a bit of a culmination around that right before the municipal election where Coke got elected that involved the occupation of the Woodward's building. And that involved dozens, maybe hundreds of people. I'm not sure. I wasn't there. But after the collapse of the squat and the occupation, there was a factional fight that happened in the anti-poverty committee. And out of the anti-poverty committee factional fight, Fire This Time Movement for Social Justice was born. And this was a grouping of people that came out of the APC that wanted to organize really seriously against the provincial government, against the liberal government. And so they formed this other group that was going to be more efficient, more political, more effective, less corrupt than the APC. So I joined a youth organization that they formed in 2003. This was after uh, the building of the StopWar.ca coalition in which Fire This Time participated. And there was a huge factional fight within StopWar.ca that was largely based around the central person in Fire This Time endlessly agitating and constantly polemicking with people in an effort to consolidate the young people around him interested in him being the most radical voice on the left and they should listen to him. 
I would say sincerely, I, I got involved around this time. There were some legitimate grievances reflected by their faction that I sympathized with, mainly that it was important to continue organizing on the streets and that young people were angry and they wanted to do work not just around the Iraq war, but around imperialism. And so, Afghanistan. And Afghanistan. Like, you know, we're in Canada. Why don't we talk about where there are Canadian troops? Why don't we talk about the Canadian military structure? So it was all about looking at things, I thought, from a more left-wing perspective, systemically policy, not just focusing on Bush and Iraq, which was kind of what was happening at the time. So mobilization against war and occupation is a coalition that was built where other people who didn't want to work with stopwar.ca could go and work in this coalition. But, you know, it's supposed to be a coalition of like 50 different endorsing member groups, like 48 of those groups, like <clears throat> have never attended a meeting before, you know, like there was an endorsement that was made and it was in an effort to create a competing force in the city that would rival stopwar.ca for anti-war organizing. The climate within the organization was um, incredibly intense. It was built to be functioning somewhat like a revolutionary cell or cadre. Uh, there were like really intense education classes. The group <laughs> operated based around democratic centralism, which I'm not sure if listeners are familiar with this idea, but it's a Leninist practice whereby you can have major disagreements with members of your organization, but in the public, outside of the organization, you all have to have the same line. And this was a way of kind of stifling, I don't even want to say dissent in the organization, that's not really what things looked like, but it was a way of kind of like railroading through ideas and actions in a way that didn't really reflect the the ideas or the will of everybody in the group and more just reflected the powerful center so I really want to encourage our listeners here. I'm visual. I'm a visual person. So if you can visualize, think of shells. OK, so fire this time is like the fruity jelly center. And then there's like a shell over top of the fire this time. And that's Youth Third World Alliance. That was the group that I was a part of. So that was like the youth cadre. OK, so Mallow. So this is very important. Mallow is like the uh, the outer crispy shell. OK, that's like the panko crust. That's the anti-war coalition. Anyone can be a member of that organization. There's no initiation. There's no crazy six-hour meetings. Like, once you get into one group, it's like, maybe they'll recruit you to the next group. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and it becomes this kind of, like, exclusivity uh, situation where you can become a real organizer. It's all garbage. I don't want to, like, get into naming names. It's not really where I'm at right now. But as time has gone on, and I've seen some of the ways that people try to manipulate power around oppression online and offline in activist groups. Some of it sounds awfully familiar from my time in Mao. What uh, inspired you to leave Mao in the end? Was there like a negative experience? Like the, did the democratic centralism decide on things that were contrary to your politics in the too fundamental a way? Or? Oh no, that sounds, that's so honorable and noble. Thank you for suggesting that. No, that's <laughs> totally not how I left the organization. I basically left the organization because I was like, I am totally exhausted and totally demoralized <laughs> and I can't seem to do anything right in this organization. So I'm done. I like threw in my hat. I basically was just like, I am not interested in arguing or fighting or disagreeing with anybody anymore. And I'm tired of being told that nothing I do is any good. So I'm just I, I'm like, peace. <laughs> yeah, I've got a friend of mine who will actually like rip down Mao posters when he sees them yeah. as a matter of purpose. I found out this week, I got a message from a friend saying, you know, this person gave me the name uh, do you do you know this person? I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's 
that's the leader of the Fire This Time cult. And they were like, oh, because he's he was considering applying for the editorial board of our major leftist national magazine. And I was like, yeah, you don't want to do that. You might want to know something about this guy. I think we can so, name the magazine. I was Canadian Dimension. Well, I guess, I mean, we, we've talked about how the absence of a positive platform is something that causes uh, negative outcomes in the left. Are you talking about leftism as a critical discipline a little bit? Like, do we don't we don't know how to talk about things without complaining about them? Yes, that I think it's the catharsis thing again. I actually I want to mention something that Hugh mentioned kind of offhand once that I thought was very astute, which was that um, we were at an anarchist book fair and we were talking about the way the reasons why people go to anarchist book fairs or to any leftist event for that matter. And it's that everybody is engaging in their own process of self-actualization and their act of participating in this protest or buying this book or going to see this documentary is all about them self-actualizing as the person that they want to be, whether that's an environmentalist, whether that's a revolutionary student of a Maoist cell. It, it's like people envision what it is they want to be doing. When I moved to Vancouver, I thought I was going to become a revolutionary. I thought I was joining the most serious leftist organization I could find. And everything about that organization was okay. Because in my mind, I was self-actualizing as, you know, a hardcore revolutionary who was learning how to, um, you know, engage in tough struggle. So it's interesting where our ideas of like who we are and what types of activists we want to be. It's interesting to see where that leads us sometimes. And how that sort of like overlaps into the catharsis thing where you have this realm of sub capital P politics realm of like social relations where where politics is yeah. an identity and the way that you talk and think about politics is based on like echoes of kind of like social interactions. This form of kind of like political gossip is taking the place of political theory. Welcome back to old friends getting coffee together who haven't seen each other in years. Hey, old friend. Hey, old friend. How you old doing? Old friend, it's nice to see you. It's been years. Yeah. Oh, you already got me a coffee. I did. I did. I remembered how you like it too, right? One sugar, no cream. That's exactly right. Ooh, it's, it's still hot. You must have just got this. Yeah, I knew that you'd be five minutes late because, hey, it's you. You know? Hey, well, because <laughs> I'm I'm more of a five minutes before kind of guy, but oh, that's huh. perfect. It gives you ten minutes to work on these scathing barbs. You haven't changed a bit, old friend. All in good fun. All in good fun. Speaking of scathing barbs, there's something I want to hear your signature rapier wit tear apart. Oh, sure, anything. Because they've been driving me up the wall. They SJWs, those social justice oh. warriors, mm. on the campuses, trying to get their teachers fired. This no platform stuff, violence at protests. I just knew that if there was one free speech warrior I know to utterly eviscerate their arguments it would be you yeah no it's interesting actually that you bring that up and you frame it that way because that's the opinion that I came into it with you know it's like what are these weirdos doing they're just like completely undermining yeah, their own ability just, to speak with like taking down free speech rights where do radical ideas come from free speech like what do you yeah, yeah just nutty so stuff dumb. yeah but then I had this experience I was like I'm gonna you know listen to some of these idiots talk so I can make fun of them better and I was listening to this woman give a speech about the experience of being adopted from a family of one race into the family of of another race and she started off her speech by giving this just long list of 
acknowledgments and rejoinders and like, you know, I don't speak for any other Korean born women of color who were adopted into white families or I don't speak on the lesbian experience just going on and on. And at first I was rolling my eyes. I was like, what? Hand wringing, unnecessary nonsense. But I just... I could tell that she just really cared about it. All these little issues that she was making note of at the beginning, she really felt them and had like deeply held belief that these things were worthwhile. And I just tapped into that emotion in her and I empathized with her and I thought, well, what is this there that I'm not getting? Why is she having this emotional empathy for all these causes that I'm not having? And, and it just made me pause for a minute and actually, you know, want to have a listen to what she was saying. So, uh, sorry, are you saying like you're against free speech now? Or they get to you somehow or like... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, no, nobody got to me. But just like, why do you support them trying to control other people? Like, why do they have that malicious desire to control other people and make them do things? Make put square pegs through round holes. Like, I really expected you to have a really rational kind of hilarious rapier takedown, kind of like we used to do back in the old days, you know, where you bring out your wit and you just show the folly of it. I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a wide range of opinions from people who all get kind of get lumped together in this this label of just SJW. And there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff there. And I just don't want to throw out the bad with the good. I want to have a nuanced take and kind of look at all the bits and pieces and, you know, throw out what doesn't work and agree with what does work and kind of understand where they're coming from. You know? Yeah, I guess, you know, I hear you. I mean, and what you're saying makes sense. You know, kids, a lot of these people are kids. I'm 38. Like, obviously, young kids are going to do dumb shit sometimes. And, you know, they want to make the world a better place. And they're just learning as they go. I think that's admirable. It's who they want to be. I think for me, what really throws me for a loop now is who I am and who you are and who we were together. Like, we were at the top of the atheism community. Yeah. We were the most rational guys in town and we shut everyone down. With my knowledge of statistics and your quick wit, no one could take us. But I guess it's best just to move on and, and live your life and allow yourself to grow. Like, it seems like you've let yourself grow. Maybe it's time for me to grow, too. You know, that's not a half bad conclusion to come to uh, meeting an old friend for coffee for the first time in years. Well, great to see you. Great to see you, man. Yeah, great to. You want to shake hands before we part? Here, let me just finish off this coffee here. I'll just uh, dry my hand on this napkin. Don't want to give you sweat. Thank you for that. I'll just take your hand in my hand. There we and, go. And, and we'll move up them up and, and down. down. Up yeah. and oh, sorry. My hand did get sweaty again. Oh, in yeah. That's okay. I forgive you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. It was nice to meet you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Take care. Bye. We'll see you next time on Old Friends Getting Coffee Together Who Haven't Seen Each Other in Years. What you said reminded me of just kind of the idea of it's, it's kind of absurd, like someone who decides I'm going to be a communist now, like a little switch is flicked and it's like now I am a communist. There's something about me that is communistic. And then they move their world around fitting into that identity, but it's not actually necessarily about the process of what is the outcome that I want to achieve? What are the steps to move towards that outcome? Like results-based politics versus like expression-based politics. And whether we choose to admit it or not, we come from a consumer-based society where it's like, oh, I'm a communist now. I've got my little Mao purse. I'm good to go. Like I'm a, com I'm a communist now, right? I got the purse. This is a real thing we saw at Left Forum. Yeah, we made fun of some Mao purses. <laughs> Let 1,000 purses bloom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, this is our favorite topic of conversation, basically, and it has a bunch of appendages. For a while, I really liked the metaphor of talking about the left as a cargo cult. For listeners who aren't familiar with cargo cult in World War II, the British and American armies, and more importantly, air forces, used islands in the Pacific as landing strips. And in exchange, in exchange, they like forced the transaction on them, I'm sure, but they gave the people who lived on the islands various manufactured goods from industrial civilization. And when the war ended, they packed up the airstrips and left. But the people who lived on the island had got so used to the ritual that they continued. And in some places, I think to this day, 70 years later, still continue to reproduce the ritual that brought the planes in, like the waving of the cones and the guy sitting in the, the conning tower. I forget exactly what they physically do, but they imitate the way that the Air Force brought the planes in, hoping that the cargo will come. But obviously, there are no planes. No one's brought any cargo in 70 years, but as like I think they're still doing it. And there's one segment that worships Prince Philip as well, which I mentioned partially as an aside and partially as a burn on Trotskyists. But the point about cargo cults is just that nobody knows why they protest. Like nobody is bothering to investigate the relationship between protest and social chains for the most part. And like if you press people, they'll often be like, well, it's a good place to meet people. And it's like, actually, it's a shitty place to meet people compared <laughs> to many other places you could be meeting people. It's a better place to meet people than like sitting in your house. But it's like all of the defenses of protests are so feeble that it's just like literally no matter what you're telling me a protest could do, I could think of five things that would accomplish that better. And it's just that it's fun and all your friends are there. I, I asked a question about this on social media recently. I was like, hey, people, what do you think of protests? And a surprising number of people were like, they're good when my friends show up, which is like that is a party you're describing, man, <laughs> like a shitty party outdoor with no beer. <sighs> and I, it just because I... I had no like direct contact with the left when I was an undergrad. I was just studying left history. And so I have a really acute sense of what was working for the left in the first half of the 20th century. So I like had this vision in my mind of like general strikes and unions with millions of members that are all like up to date on what the fuck's going on in their union and not being taken for a ride by a bunch of asshole pork choppers. I have this vision of like co-ops and like functional socialist parties that aren't like racing to the bottom of social democracy. Uh, and it's just like whatever kind of left politics I'm looking at in the present, I'm just seeing it as a shitty imitation of what there was in the past, with the exception of feminism, uh, which, you know, it's like feminists now have much better politics and practice than uh, suffragettes did in the 1920s. Other than the, the Pankhursts who used to smash soft windows as part of their suffrage campaign, which is like pretty, about, pretty metal. What about decolonial or indigenous resistance? I feel like we've we've been experiencing an uptick like indigenous people just have been resisting all along. I kind of just and think it's labor. Like, I just kind of feel like unions are in a tough place and, you know, they are a traditional mobilizing force in Canada, in but, Canada especially. But like co-ops and socialist parties are not labor. No. And I mean, the environmental movement's obviously doing better because like there was no environmental movement in the first half of the 20th century. But no, but the idea of like a people's climate march where we are writing protest signs that are written who to the government, like who? Who, who do we direct our signs to? I often kind of feel like we should be showing up in the streets, but we should be using it in some way that suits ourselves. We shouldn't assume that because we're in the streets, the people who have power are reading our stuff. Like, I just, I feel like that's a little. Yeah. Unless it's, it's, unless it's a planned out thing, like this is a message directly yes. for X group or Y group that is making this choice. But that's also super rare. Show up and occupy the office. Like, yeah, you've got their attention. Like, that's cool. But that's, that's not <laughs> but a protest. That's, that's not exactly a protest. I mean, it's an occupation or a sit in or something, but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Like, I don't feel like all protests are bad. And I feel like we do give protests a fair amount of, 
flack considering the fact that we publish social justice comics, but we just really want people to be thinking about like, are we just doing something because we think that this is how it's done? Because how it's been done has not been very effective. So let's like, let's think outside the box. Let's like think of some other things that we haven't tried. Well, and it's like old protests came out of organizing, right? And they reflected like a really serious organizing infrastructure, especially in the age before or in the beginning of mass media, because the newspapers, mass media, I guess. But now it's like, you know, something like an Iraq war protest or, you know, whatever it is, like maybe a million people will show up, but it's often not because a million people's worth of organizing was done. It's just because the issue resonated with a lot of people and they heard there was a protest and they came to the protest without ever talking to an organizer. Mm -hmm. And like, in a way, it's like, that's good when that happens because it means a lot of people are mobilized, but most of those people just melt away again. And so it doesn't mean anything because they're not any kind of sustained political force. Mm, I want to tie together two things that have come up, which is one is democratic centralism and the other is all of this friendly criticism from the left to the left, which I feel like doesn't happen enough in public because there's this implicit democratic centralism where you don't punch left. When someone has like similar broad identity as you and they do something wrong, there's this idea that by criticizing or pointing out the folly of it or anything like that is somehow impairing the overall broad left spectrum that you're on. But I I found since I got involved in politics and was able to talk to people who saw it the same way and were able to kind of like air their view on it and see like, oh, your view is actually similar to mine. We're seeing these same patterns that are impairing the ability of organizing to actually be effective. And that's been super valuable to me as well. But I specifically think like when we air this type of criticism in public as leftists, as people who are committed to overthrowing these hierarchical systems that impair people's free lives, there's like an ideological vulnerability to it where right wing people or people outside of our spectrum see oh, well, they see what I see too. And it, like we know it is like grinding fingernails on the chalkboard to average people. And mm-hmm. it gives so much power to demagogues and, and just like these horrible political forces that feed on being able to point out like, look at this person, they're being outrageous. Whereas like, I don't think that we should be like cruel about it or throw people under the bus. Like people say that leftists all like tear each other down also. But I think that leftists don't tear each other down enough in some ways. Like, mm-hmm. And we have this false front that we all absolutely agree on all these things. So I just, I feel like it's a super valuable thing that people, I'm seeing people do more and more now and especially like through comedy. Yeah, well, and I think that it's safer to do it through comedy because people might not necessarily feel like you're making a serious political point if there's like a joke tied into it. I've felt like I have exhausted the resource represented by angry Facebook posts and I don't have it. I don't have it in me to make anymore. <laughs> you already got uh, the big payout from that. Like all the, yeah. <laughs> the checks but have already think, stopped coming back. Well, you wouldn't believe how many people I've had like in the past five years be like, I'm an anarchist now, like in a meaningful part, thanks to your Facebook posting. I don't believe it. It seems ridiculous to me. And I roll my eyes every time it comes up. But regardless of how you communicate it, and I think how we communicate these criticisms are good questions. Like we just can't afford to flee the field, right? Like it's embarrassing that the right wing, for example, is like burying us on campus because they have all of these highly valid criticisms of the Canadian Federation of Students. And instead of us being like, yeah, how come we don't have like a non-hierarchical anti-capitalist student union pushing for free tuition? We're like, hey, no, protect the CFS, which it's like is a democratic centralist organization that fucks students. And instead, here's the right being like, look, this organization takes your money. It doesn't give you anything for it. Tuition keeps going up. And then it takes a bunch of political positions without consulting you. And it's like all that stuff is true and a problem. And it's like instead of us engaging with the CFS, like we don't pay any attention with it on to it on the left broadly. 
except when it's being attacked. And then we like come to defend it because it's nominally a left wing institution. But it's like it's actually such a problem that it's like I, I think that the CFS played an active role, for example, in preventing people from taking interest in Assay's organizing model after the Quebec student strike, because that organizing model is deeply threatening to the Canadian Federation of Students, which is a top down organization. And I say, meanwhile, where there is no center and it's all grassroots and like, there's yeah, a national spokesperson or whatever, but that's as central as it gets. It's like an opposite kind of structure. But I don't know. I don't want to like totally get going about CFS in particular. I think even left wing organizations that I love are either like caged in by their institutional structure in terms of the kind of work they can do. And then maybe they're just like, how can we support them? Maybe like the critique of NGOs that NGOs can't do this and this and this because they're bound by the tax code and stuff. It's like the point of that critique might not be fuck NGOs. It might be like, well, how do we build this kind of like para NGO political structure mm-hmm. that can like engage in activities that the NGO can't? Let's focus on the capacity that NGOs are built for, designed for and create some community cooperation. I'm going to be like a big dork for a minute or like I'm going to continue to be a big dork because I have been for the past hour and a half and say that it all comes back to the split in the first international. And it's like easy to read that split as anarchists and communists. But what the split actually was, was Marx saying everybody needs to run in elections and that is the correct strategy. And the center of the international has a right to impose that strategy on everyone. And pretty much the rest of the international being like, different sections should make their own decisions about what's working. It's like, I I don't like to say it because I think that my politics reflect a best way forward, but like everyone thinks that. And the truth is we need to figure out a way to work together in loose coalitions where we don't get in each other's way, even though we criticize each other. Like, I think we should talk more about the problems with each other, but also collaborate more and like have that be fine. I think that that came close to happening in the 90s. I know Naomi Klein was like championing diversity of tactics to the NDP, which is like now is unthinkable. But I think that we need to get real about the fact that there's no like one true ideology on the left we're all going to rally around. And maybe we can just basically agree not to treat each other like shit and to work together towards the goals that are attainable and like drop right accelerationism. (laughs) You're going to need a lot more blue paint. Sean, are you familiar with Iraq veterans against the war? No, I don't. In the United States? I don't think so. Well, I like to bring them up as an example of, I think, some of the most dynamic thinking when it comes to political organizing and anti-war organizing in particular that I've heard in the last several years. There was an IBAW chapter that operated outside of an army base in Texas, and They basically figured out that on the weekends, the guys on the base didn't know what to do and would just sort of go into town, go to a strip club, go to a bar, get drunk, go back and whatever. And they realized that they could go to the base with a pickup truck and basically just be like, hey, we're doing a veteran support barbecue. If you want to come, you can just hop in the back of the truck. We'll give you a ride home at the end. They took all of these guys who were in basic training to their barbecue, out to play Call of Duty, and just talk to them. Just talk to them about the war, talk to them about the military, talk to them about the benefits that they were receiving, the shitty relationship that they have with Veterans Affairs. And they just like established a lifeline with these guys who are being actively indoctrinated by the U.S. military machine. It's hard for me to imagine a leftist who both owns a pickup truck and can talk to strangers. And can play Call of Duty. <laughs> uh, maybe the last one. Uh, <laughs> 
But I really like that as an example because it's like, you know what? What is it focused on? It's on recruitment as a form of human connection. And it's based around what the recruit wants to do, not what the fucking leftist wants to do. You know, it's like leftists, we can sit in panel discussions until the cows come home. (laughs) You know, like some of us, we love the sounds of our own voices. But like, we need to think like, okay, who do we need to be reaching here? What do they need? How can we help them with our experience? And how can we have a safe space to engage with them around these issues? And I, I've heard this from a friend and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Like, how do you guys decide what's a campaign and what's not? And the member who was talking to me said, we're essentially an anarchist organization. If you have two or more people in IBAW who want to take on a project and it lines up with the mandate that we have, go for it. And it's just like, once you have a project, let us know and different people will help to support that. And it's just like, that would, something like that would never fly in, in a national organization like that operates around democratic centralism. I don't want to say, you know, CFS or whatever. <laughs> but if, if you have an organization that uh, just lets people do things where they have strength and where they have capacity and where they have the motivation and the inspiration to do it, you will find a much more organic and and dynamic space for organizing. So you two have uh, produced and are now working on publishing a really wonderful comic I had the chance to read an advanced copy of. And as you mentioned before, it's about the oil industry. Uh, These two people who have taken different paths working with either these NGOs or with the uh, oil industry directly, where there's all this money and this kind of moral contradiction there. You know, it's funny, I guess it's pretty much just about what we were just talking about a second ago. It's a comic about how you have to know how to talk to an ordinary human being as a left-wing person. And you also need to figure out a way to eat that doesn't involve being totally evil. And those things are hard and scary and they can cause a lot of conflict. And it can seem like the easier thing to do is just to try and go along to get along or otherwise take a path of least resistance because there's more than one, right? But I think that ultimately the comic is about having to find your own path that sounds trite but you know it is a great horrible thing about life that all valuable wisdom sounds unbearably banal when spoken aloud like everything worth knowing it's like if someone tells it to you you're like that's not helpful at all and then years later you're like oh that was profound i just wasn't ready for it but anyway yeah i mean it's a comic about striking out on your own and figuring out what it means to both be concerned with social justice and also not caught in the subcultural trap. My take on the comic is if we want to think about the big discussion that is climate change and how we respond to it, I I think some people refer to it as a discourse. If we really boil it down, it could be almost like a conversation. It's really hard to have a conversation when there are people engaging in bad faith or are lying (laughs) and advertising is full of lies. And so to be able to look at the way that we are approaching the oil economy and sustainable transitions away from the oil economy or away from fossil fuels, the waters are really muddied by the amount of advertising that is involved in the debate. uh, And we try to look at that in the comic. We also try to point out that advertising is about winning the hearts and minds of people. And in order to be talking about this discussion, we really need to be doing more than that. We can't just be winning hearts and minds. We need to be thinking critically and talking critically and sincerely and openly with each other about what kind of world we want to build and how it's going to look. 
So, I mean, again, like Hugh says, I mean, it sounds like it's a about a really big subject and it is. It's a 100 page comic that has a lot to say and many different ways to say it. So we hope people will take a look at it and give us their feedback. Actually, tell us what you think of it. I liked it. Hooray! (laughs) I especially liked the little details, like the uh, background stuff. And like you mentioned, like that little book chin reference. I I only caught one on my read through. I don't know if there's more, if I should go digging. But yeah, then also just like the arc of the story. It tackles big issues, but in a way, in the context of like a relatively simple story about um, a relationship between people who are faced with these like really, really hard weird political questions about like how to live your life thanks for coming on the show and talking about talking about all sorts of things actually (laughs) we we stirred some shit let's be honest (laughs) i i uh, i I definitely enjoyed it uh so yeah thanks for coming on thanks sean it's been really fun what an ep i like listening to ones that i didn't have to do the talking on yeah no i know that feeling for like when you get an interview and I get to like just listen. Yeah, it's really nice for me. So personal thank you to Nicole and Hugh. And also uh, thank you from the show to Nicole and Hugh for, for being on the show. But just a personal <laughs> thank you for uh, me not having to talk. And yeah, so this is the Seriously Wrong Podcast. It's a show we do every week. You can visit us online at srslywrong.com, seriouslywrong.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers for keeping the show going. And for anyone who wants to enter in a special one-time Seriously Wrong contest to win a copy of Hugh and Nicole's comic book, The Beast. This is the the contest that you teased multiple times during the episode, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the little little teaser. Here it is. Now it's how paying do, off. How do you enter? Well, here's the rules. It's the elevator pitch for World Peace Contest. We've talked on the show in the past about elevator pitches for world peace. That is a quick, concise summary of the better world that you would create if you were able to. What steps you would take to get there. uh, What the world would look like. Anything on that spectrum of the quick story of what does world peace look like to you? What is the world you want to create? Mm -hmm. So we'll accept entries either through our hotline 1-866-770-8754. That's free if you're in the United States or Canada. Or you can also enter on our Facebook page or our website. There's a voicemail machine um, on one of the tabs on our Facebook page and on the contact page of our website. Yep. So under four minutes, briefly summarize the world that you want to see, how to get there, uh, steps that you want to see taken, things that you think are essential to the creation of this much better world, this utopia that we can co-create together. Everyone who enters in that contest will be entered in a draw and will be giving away copies of The Beast. And we'll pay for the shipping if you you're in the United States or Canada. Otherwise, we might have to work something out. And to kick off the contest, we have one from Nicole, right? Yeah, yeah. Nicole of, of Ad Astra Comics. You might have heard her on, earlier on this show. <laughs> she's, she's got her entry. And if she wins, then we'll send the book right back to her. Hi, Sean and Aaron. I'm calling in with my elevator pitch for World Peace. I grew up in a pretty like left-leaning family, half Canadian, half American. I spent most of my youth as uh, growing up in Illinois and in Kansas. Fast forward a few years, I moved from the U.S. to Vancouver, where I got involved in anti-war organizing. One of my first demonstrations was against the bombing in Afghanistan. I, I did a, like a banner drop off of the side of my school. I was like really, I was really anxious. I was really eager to advocate for for peace 
And it's funny because I found myself cutting off a lot of people in my life around that time based on my politics. I remembered having really heated political conversations and like really heated personalist political conversations with a lot of people and eventually found myself in a more and more insular group that was like really uh, uh, like a microcosm, uh, like an intense echo chambers. And it was interesting because we spent a lot of time talking about ending war and talking about the brutality of war. And yet, in many ways, we were quite violent within our own group. We were violently intolerant of difference. Sometimes members of the group were physically violent. And, you know, ironically, I feel like my mind didn't open at all until I left uh, my organization and my, like, in-group of activists and started hanging out with some people who had opinions that were like really different than mine. Uh, started hanging out with soldiers who had served in Iraq and Afghanistan, who had voted for Bush, who came from really conservative upbringings, you know, some libertarians, some anarchist, communist folks a bit, but like also some right-winging people as well. And I feel like that experience taught me uh, some important things that are good to remember when it comes to how we could participate in world peace or how we can build world, world, world peace. One of them is that our notions of understanding trauma and unpacking baggage are due in a huge part to organizations like Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Uh, the reason that we know about PTSD and triggers is because of an organization of soldiers who came back from war and felt like war was trauma for them. So when we want to think about how to build peace, we should look to the people who have been most affected by war and they can offer us a path. Secondly, that I believe that when we're trying to create a more peaceful world, um, mindfulness is really important for that. And mindfulness is a thing that benefits both our rational thinking and our emotional health. And it helps us when we are engaging with people who disagree with us. And then the last point I wanted to bring up was that truth is itself dialectic. We find a better truth when we are able to synthesize two different and, and often opposing ideas. And lastly, that war is about final options. War is kind of like the last option when diplomacy has failed. And so if we can think about the ways that in our lives, maybe we want to be waging war, but maybe we haven't tried some other things yet. So maybe to think of war definitely as a thing where it's the last in a long list of options. So that's my pitch. Yeah, I really, I really liked Nicole's pitch. All the aspects there were really well thought out, uh, but t two of them especially captured my imagination or, or, or were things that I really love. The first one that truth is dialectical. I mean, we all know I love, I love the balance. I love the resolving the tensions of opposites. I love understanding that the conversations are part of the process that we all use to figure out what the fuck is going on and then also the mindfulness one I, I like a lot the instinct to bring the the fight for world peace down to the micro level because i don't know you know bringing about world peace it's a big task end all war end all poverty implement these massive sweeping changing policies and stuff all that stuff is great but like it can be a little disheartening when you're just like, oh, how am I going to do that? What, what can I actually do myself to make the world around me 
a little bit more peaceful, my internal world and the world around me a little bit more peaceful. So I liked that aspect of her answer a lot. Yeah. And the world peace conversation, the utopia conversation, it needs to encapsulate everything from the super macro, you know, the world scale. That's where we ultimately want the peace. Mm -hmm. But then also, how does that connect to our actual lived lives like are we waiting for the world's best politician to get elected and do it somehow on our behalf or is it something that we're going to start doing and that's these are the types of questions that i would love to hear addressed in people's entries in the contest yeah totally world peace must be made up of a mosaic of little pieces surrounding uh people and communities and families and Mm -hmm. cities and World peace pieces. Pieces of peace. Yeah. Peaceful (laughs) peaceful pieces of peace. Uh, so yeah, thanks thanks for coming on the show, uh, Nicole and Hugh, and thanks everyone for listening. We'll see ya. See you soon. Or hear you soon. Or you'll hear us soon. You'll hear us. We'll never see or hear you. Unless you call to the hotline, enter in the contest. (laughs) Otherwise I won't see or hear you. Thank you. This can't be right, right? Next time on Seriously Wrong, we have a delightful romp that might just teach you something along the way.